1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is... Help me out there, Aaron. Um, 1 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, who is now pastoring the church in Ephesus. We've spent the better part of this past year looking at, the church, looking at Paul's letter to the, to the church in Ephesus. And here, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy as to how to address the issues that continue to come up within this congregation. If you remember the city of Ephesians, excuse me, the city of Ephesus where the Ephesians lived, was a city that was a global city. It was a pluralistic city with a lot of different religions. It was a center of commerce. And Paul is concerned for the Christians there with two main concerns that are driving his letter to Timothy to address in the church. One is that they would know what true teaching is and true doctrine, and also that they would live lives in accord with the gospel, that they would conduct themselves honoring to the Lord in the household of faith. So Paul begins this letter to Timothy by stating this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit to open up your word to us, that our lives might be conformed to your truth, that our lives might be lived in accord with the gospel, that it would overflow in love for you and love towards others. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. A few years ago, Holly and I were visiting some friends out in Salt Lake City, and we went skiing for the day. And as we were skiing on the mountains in the amazing snow that is the Utah Mountains, and um, we were decided to go up a little bit higher and go ski down the backside of the mountain. And right as we were heading off this trail, which was on expert terrain, there was this warning sign. And the warning sign said, beware of cliffs, crags, boulders, and fissures. Ski at your own risk. And the good news is, as we headed off down the hill, I only fell once. I fell at the top and I stood up at the bottom. And... Um, <laughs> And fortunately, I didn't roll off a fissure while I was doing this. And I said, you know, I bet I could find that sign. So I went online to find that exact sign. I couldn't find that sign, but I found some other signs that were similar on comparable hills. This was one set of them. Watch out for the crevices. 
Caution, trees don't move. Really important for you to know and understand. Also, caution for cliff as you're skiing over the edge. You know, of course, there's always the grading sign of different ski slopes that are out there from green, green circle, blue square, black diamond, and double black diamond. Experts only, extremely difficult. Going beyond this point may result in death and or loss of ski privileges. <laughs> now, that's really helpful because... If I have the option of dying but maintaining my ski privileges, you know, this might be something that I would need to consider. And, and in case these signs aren't, uh, don't really get the point of cross, there were a number of other signs that were really helpful that just said, you are about to leave the ski resort and warning, you can die. <laughs> this is your decision. Um, do not leave the ski resort. It actually doesn't say do not leave the ski resort. It says you are leaving and you can die. And, and signs like these, when you're up there, they're, they're actually really helpful, you know? I mean, if you want to know where not to die, the sign really, really helps, helps communicate that sort of thing to you. And if you are, have been spending the morning on the bunny hill and you decide that I'm going to go tackle the big mountain and you stumble off the ski lift and you stumble into something that says this, it's really helpful to know, you know what, I think I'm going to look for an easier path down the mountain. Maybe not a faster path, but at least an easier path down the mountain. And so these signs are really helpful, but they also have their limitations. Because no matter how many signs are placed all over the mountain, these signs can't teach you how to ski. These signs can't teach you a love for the outdoors. They, they can't you help you have the experience of the exhilaration of flying down a mountain with white powder billowing behind you as you, as you curve through a, a slope or hit a mogul. It can't, do, it can't do any of those things. It's not uncommon that people who have issues with Christianity will say something like, well, you know, I'm not really interested in Christianity because Christianity is just a bunch of rules. And the equivalent of what they're saying is like, Christianity is just a bunch of warning signs. And what's even more problematic is Christians who profess to be Christians, and I know many of you are exploring what a relationship with Christ is like, but Christians who want to grow. And their answer to growing or dealing with a struggle in their life or dealing with some sin or some, something that they're battling with, their answer is, say, I'm going to put more rules in place, which is really just the equivalent of putting up more warning signs. Because Christianity is not a bunch of rules, but rather it is a, a life of love that is overflowing in life. It is, it is the exhilaration of being in a daily relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in writing this letter, is concerned because there are false teachers that are leading this church astray. And when we say false teachers, we need to understand who these are. Most likely, they were two elders in the church in Ephesus. And these were people who were professing Christians, people who used the Bible and were teaching from the Bible, and in so doing, they were leading people astray. And it destroyed the love of the church and resulted in speculation and controversies within the congregation. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that these false teachers were teaching. But we do know that the principal issue was that these false teachers, these people calling themselves Christians who were leading people astray, 
we know that the issue was that they were seeking to make the law of God do things that the law fundamentally cannot do. There's an error that was present then. It's a continued tendency over the last 2,000 years for Christians to make the same mistake. So this passage is set up with two contrasting thoughts. The first one is this, that the law is really good, and the law is really useful for lawlessness. Paul says, for we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now consider that conditional phrase, the law is good if, if what? If one uses it lawfully, but if one uses it unlawfully, the law is bad. If one uses it unlawfully, it is not helpful. If one uses the law wrongly in a way that God did not intend, it is actually very destructive. Now, when we're saying here, we're talking about the law of God, we're referring to the commands laid down in Scripture that God expects us to obey. Historically, Christians have celebrated that the law is good and that there's three main ways that the law functions in the Christian life. One of the ways that it functions is to convict people of their law-breaking, to convict people of sin. So, you, know, you take a given uh, issue, whether someone's lying, cheating, stealing, murder, adultery, take your pick. One of the reasons why people know that that's a violation of God's law is because it says it's a violation of God's law. And that convicts people to say, oh, wow, I actually broke God's law, and it's clearly laid out there. Another use of the law, so one is to convict sin. Another use of the law is to restrain evil. And that is accompanied by the consequences that go on with the law. That if you know that there are consequences, it would urge you to, to not go there. So if you know that if you go down that ski slope, you can die, you might say, hey, I think I'm going to pick another path down. Let me give you another example. Personally, um, I, when I'm driving, um, I, I do not speed. Um, that is not because I'm a pastor and I have this level of holiness and piety in my life. It is because I am a magnet for speeding tickets whenever they're out there. And so if there is, if there is a situation where I happen to be speeding and there is a police officer who has a speed trap up, I don't even bother having them turn on the lights. I mean, I just pull over because, I mean, they, they've, they've got me. And, and they pull over, hey, what you here for? Just give me the ticket, man. Just, you know, just, let's, just, let's, just, let's just make this fast. But the reason why I obey the speed limit, this is my personal confession time, the reason why I obey the speed limit is because I don't like speeding tickets. And I don't want to get a speeding ticket. And so what the law functions, because of the penalty, the law functions to restrain evil and restrain wickedness. The third use of the law, the third function of it, is to instruct in godliness. Which is to say that if you know that lying, cheating, stealing, and adultery and murder is wrong, well, what is right? Well, not doing those things or doing the opposite of those things. And so the law is good in all those different ways all those different ways. But it is important to know who the law is for, and this is what Paul seeks to clarify in this passage. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that you need to use the law is good if you use it correctly, understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and for the disobedient. He's saying, listen, the law is not laid down for the just. The law is not given for people 
who act rightly, but for those who don't. Because if everyone have, you know, just naturally drove their car in a safe and controlled manner and they were never late and they were never concerned about someone cutting them off, you wouldn't need the lead for speed limits. You wouldn't need, the, you wouldn't need any sort of road laws. Similarly, it's true with the rest of our laws. Like, if people naturally honored up other people's property and honored other people's possessions, we wouldn't need fences and we wouldn't need borders and boundaries. If, for example, that you, um, with the law, like if there was, if people naturally cared for other people, if people naturally sought to be an advocate for the weak and vulnerable, then we wouldn't need laws against anti-discrimination or civil rights legislation or religious freedom or religious liberty laws. We wouldn't need those things if people naturally did this. If everybody would respect everybody else's rights and the fact that they're made in the image of God, laws would not be necessary. It's true in our country and it's true of the law of God as well. But the law is good because if you really, if you want to know what not to do, the law is really helpful. And so here in this passage, Paul lists out several types of behaviors that are danger signs, warning signs. He gives six general sins it says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, that the, those who reject God. And then he goes into five more that are specifically related to the Ten Commandments. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, that is, those who fail to honor their father and mother. For murderers, violation of don't murder. For the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. That's a violation of do not commit adultery. For enslavers, that would be those that covet other people to the point of enslaving them. Human traffickers. Liars, perjurers, those who bear false witness. And then in case he missed anything, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. Anything, anything else would fall into this category that is contrary, contrary to the gospel. He gives 11 different examples of lawbreakers. He is listing the types of people for whom the law should be really, really useful for. For people who are prone to wander into danger areas. For people who are bent on walking near moral cliffs, crags, and fissures. But in writing this letter, Paul is presuming that the Christians in the church are not those sort of people. That the people in the church are people with whom the Spirit of God is now dwelling. That there has been a a transformation that has taken place in their life and that they are new creations in Christ. That they are, because the Spirit is working within them, that they are being motivated to new obedience, to do so out of love and with a sincere conscience. And so he says, no... That the law is good if you use it lawfully. And despite telling you what you shouldn't do, it won't tell you what you should do. It won't, by itself, encourage you to live a life of love. It won't encourage you to live a life with a, with a pure heart, with a good conscience and sincere faith. Beyond its lawful purpose, the law is powerless. There are many things that it cannot do. As one 
theologian writes, contrasting these two. It says, the law illuminates sin, but it is powerless to eliminate sin. It illuminates sin, but it's powerless to eliminate sin. It points to righteousness, but it cannot produce righteousness. It shows us what godliness is, but it cannot make us godly. The law can inform us of our sin, but it cannot transform the sinner. So stay with me. The law, in addition, it cannot maintain our relationship with God and others. The law cannot give us righteousness and a right standing before God. When we break the law, the law cannot make us right with God. It can only inflict punishment. The law cannot free us from bondage. It cannot free us from guilt and corruption. It cannot give us power for new obedience. It cannot give us life, but only death. It cannot be a substitute for the things that God calls us to do. It cannot give us the gift of the Spirit. It cannot cleanse our conscience. And if you are seeking for the law of God... To do these things, you are using it unlawfully. And not only are you deceived, but you are futile in your effort. And you are joining in the company of the false teachers. And if that's not enough, you're also forsaking the grace that could be yours. And in this ironic twist, you actually become a, long, you actually become a lawbreaker for your unlawful use of the law. Maybe a little bit more practical. If your Christian life is defined in relation to the law, that means that you define your Christian life and your Christian journey by your, maybe by the, your conformity to the law. You know, I'm a good person, I'm a good neighbor, I maintain my HOA covenants, my cars are maintained, I read my Bible, I seek to invite people to church, I serve, I do these things, I'm a good Christian because of these things and how I live my life and my conduct. If you define your Christianity and your Christian faith in relationship to the law, maybe by conformity, or maybe you define it in relationship to the law by your failure to uphold it, that you're regularly aware of areas that you fall short, that you don't do what God calls, us to, calls you to, that you know that you're not worthy, and so your life is defined in relationship to the law, namely in your failure to live it, or if your Christian life is defined in relationship to the law because you live your life regularly finding fault in other Christians and regularly finding fault in other Christians, other people, the church leaders, other people that you see elsewhere, that you are regularly seeing other ways that other people are falling short and they are violating and you see that they are violating not only God's law but any other standard that you yourself have imposed upon them. If you are living your Christian life and your Christian life is defined in relationship to the law, you are missing what the Christian life is all about. And this is Paul's concern. He's saying, the law is great if you want to map out where the dangers lie. The law is great if you want to know where the crags and fissures are. And do you want to know those things? I mean, I sure do. But just as those signs on the mountain can't teach you to ski and they can't give you the experience of the exhilaration of skiing, the law cannot give you a right relationship with God and it cannot give you the experience of the exhilaration of living in a daily relationship with Jesus Christ. So don't fall into the trap or lead people into it. By, and don't imagine that by imposing the law, 
that you are going to do anything more than just erecting more signposts for people to see. Don't buy into the lie that self-effort and really firm, resolved discipline is going to make you right with God. Don't buy into the lie that if you're struggling with an area of your life, that a rigorous application of the law is going to lead to an exhilarating relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't believe the lie that an unswerving exercise in obedience is actually going to lead to a change in heart. As parents, don't fall into believing the lie that if you somehow follow the formula of parenting and follow the cookie-cutter mold, that your children are going to pop out perfect and consistently every time. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe the lie that if someone is sinning, or struggling with sin, that you coming along by putting up more warning signs, I mean, that's our first reaction when someone does something wrong and there's not a rule for it. Our first reaction is, let's make a rule. Don't believe that by doing so, that it's going to do anything but put up more warning signs and and it's not going to lead to joyful obedience. Ever since the church began 2,000 years ago, there has been this tendency within Christians and within the church to misuse the law and to seek to get the law of God to do the things that it cannot do. And this tendency to drift away from the grace of God revealed in Christ Jesus. And unlawful law users, what happens is that their Christian life devolves to speculation and controversy. That's what he says in this passage. Speculation, controversy, vain discussion are the three things he mentions. Vain discussion, which is, well, I'm right and they're wrong. I'm right and I know that they're wrong. I mean, after all, look the way that I'm living and I'm living in the way that they should be living and they're not doing the things that they should be doing. I'm right, they're wrong. It's a quarrel about the law. And the consequences of the misuse of the law of God and of false teaching both obstructs people's faith and it saps a church and an individual Christian of love. The law is really good. It is really useful for lawlessness. But the law is useless for love. And that's what Paul says this is all about. He says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge, what does the Christian life look like? It looks like a life of love, overflowing love. Love of the inner working of the Holy Spirit in a person's life that results in overflowing love for God and love for other people. It it is a love that, that is the result of something else that has occurred. It is a love that springs forth, he identifies here, from a triple inner working of the Spirit of God. It is love that issues from a pure heart. That a heart, rather than a heart that is being lived with sinful desires, driving it. Desire for reputation. Desires for the pride of life and the lust of the flesh. It's love that flows from a pure heart. Love that flows from a good conscience. Rather than one that is laden with guilt and covered with shame, it flows from a a good conscience as the conscience is the inner awareness of the quality of the conduct of one's own actions. A conscience is also an awareness of how your interactions are affecting a group of people. But it is love that flows from, issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 
Literally, this is an issue from a faith without hypocrisy. That the way that some people and some Christians live their lives has absolutely no relation to the faith that they declare with their mouth and profess that they believe. Well, how, is the, how does this come about? Where does this love comes from these things, but where does that come from? Well, we already know that the law cannot make you more loving. The law is powerless to bring this about. People aren't being loving enough. Do you know what we need to do? We need to make a rule that they need to be more loving. People are unloving. We need to tell them to stop being unloving, and that will result in them being more loving. Of course not. The law is powerless to bring that about. Well, where does it come from? If it's not from the law, it comes from something else. Paul says this, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, and he continues on, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory. The law is good for everything else contrary to the gospel. If there's anything, and so he states it negatively, that the law is good to know that anything that's contrary to the gospel, because the gospel is the thing that is good, it is the gospel that generates and works love in a person's life and an overflowing love for God and for other people. How does that happen? Is that when a person realizes the depth of their own sin, realizes both the extent and the grievousness of their own personal law-breaking, And when they come to understand that Jesus Christ was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father, that Jesus Christ, therefore, alone was able to pay the price for our law-breaking and pay the penalty justly due to us the right consequence of violating God's law. When you come and put your faith in Christ and you experience The remarkable truth of a relationship with Jesus Christ that you, who is justly condemned, are now declared not guilty because Jesus Christ is your substitute. That you, who should be covered and shamed, are now accepted and adopted as a child of God, given dignity and honor. When you come to, to believe in this and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, the indwelling Spirit comes and dwells in your heart, uniting you to God, uniting you to Christ, and uniting you to other people. And what results is in love. That the gospel alone has the power to produce this love, love for God and love for others. Love that flows forth from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. How does love result from those? Well, love comes from a pure heart, a heart that's not laden down with a guilty conscience, a heart that stands before God justified, cleansed, and pure. And because he has a pure heart, there is a love that flows, a good conscience that's not feeling guilty about the things that you are or aren't doing, but rather a conscience that is lived and liberated to live for God because God's Spirit's dwelling in you and you want to live in response to what God has done. And from a sincere faith is that your faith is found in Christ. And you're saying, I know that the only thing that gives me right standing, I know that my only hope in life and death is not if I'm a lawbreaker or not a lawbreaker, if I'm a lawbiter or not a lawbiter. I know that the only thing, my only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul to my Savior, Jesus Christ. 
a love that therefore springs forth, flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And that results in us saying, you know what? I want to live my life with a radical obedience to God. Because now my life, I'm not motivated by fear. I'm not motivated, my life is not motivated by, well, I better not do that because I'm going to fall off a cliff. I better not do that because I'm going to get a speeding ticket. Life becomes no longer motivated by duty, which is, I don't really want to do this, but since God's in charge and he's my ticket, he's my only ticket for for life, I don't want to do this, I don't like doing this, I don't really interested in doing it, I don't think I need to do it, therefore I'm going to do it just because he says he's going to do it. It's not motivated by fear. It's not motivated by duty. It's not motivated by, wow, I know what God says, but I wonder how close can I get to the cliff's edge before falling off? How far can I push the boundary of what's acceptable? How close can I get to falling into sin and not, fall, and not falling there? You know, our tendency is we define obedience by behavior. Did I cross the line? But Paul defines obedience by love. Love that overflows from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. And the question that should be driving our lives as Christians is not, well, I wonder if I can get away with this. I wonder if this is too far. But the question we should be asking is, how can I live my life? In this situation, in this challenge that I'm facing, how can I live out of love for God and out of gratitude for Jesus Christ and what he has done for me? How can I live my life overflowing in love for God and love for others against which there is no law? You can't make a law for that. And that's the question that should be driving us. Paul wrote this to Timothy because he was concerned for love in the church. We saw it last week. We see it again this week. And he is also concerned for love from the church that is particularly getting or eaten away because of false teaching that is occurring within that congregation. False teaching occurring by people who are Christians, who are most likely elders of the church, who are using lots and lots of Bible, and we're leading people astray. And so Paul gives us instruction to help us, to give us a test of what is true. And I think there's two tests that we can draw from this passage that we want us to know. The first one is the test of faith. Does this come from God, and is it in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God? Does it come from God, and is it in accord with the gospel? Is it in step with the gospel? I did not say, is this teaching in accord with the Bible? I did not say, is this teaching in accord with the Bible? Because you and I both know very well that people selectively pick verses to support a wide array of things that are contrary to the Word of God. It is easy to do. In fact, even the Apostle Peter fell into erroneous Bible-based practices from the Bible. And in doing so, Paul publicly confronts and rebukes Peter for his practice of teaching that was derived from the Bible. And what Paul says to Peter is this, 
But when I saw their conduct, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He didn't say, when I saw that their conduct didn't come from the Bible because their conduct was coming from the Bible in a distorted way. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, who is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? We don't need to get into the specific the issue at hand here. But what Peter was doing is that he was using the law of God unlawfully. He was using Peter, an apostle fell into the error of using the Bible and using Scripture in a way that was out of step with the truth of the gospel. So the first question is the question of the test of faith. Does it come from God and is it in accord? Is it in step with the truth of the gospel? The second test, that is, does it stem from a sincere faith? The second test is the test of love. Does it promote love in the body? Does it promote love that comes and issues forth from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? Is it, is it loving? I I'm, I'm, bet you've had the same experience that I have had, where you get somebody, <laughs> and they decide to go on a course of action, and they convince themselves, and they say, This is the most loving thing to do, and it is said in the most unloving way that you can imagine. And you're like, what are you talking about? That's not loving. You're just deceiving yourself trying to think that your motives are out of love when you're filled with anger and bitterness and spite. Who are you kidding? So the second test is, is it a test of love? Does it promote love for God and love for his people? Is it issued from love that stems from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith? So let's wrap these things together. Paul tells us here very clearly, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So as individual Christians and as a church, may you know the law of God. May you love the law of God. But more than that, may your heart be transformed by the grace of God so that your Christianity is defined and characterized by a love. By a love that overflows for God and for other people. A love that overflows and issues forth from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that your spirit would work in us and give us a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Father, we are so prone to wander, so prone to self-justification, so prone to want to compare ourselves to other people and to see how do we measure up against them. The Lord, would your love set us free? Would people who are not Christians, when they see us, when they get to know us individually, when they get to know us as a church, would their experience be, I don't know what Christianity is about, but what I do know is that those people love well. Those people have an overflowing love for God and a love for one another and a love for all people that astounds me. Lord, would you purify us? Would the grace of God make this true? 
in our lives, in our homes, in our church. For your glory we pray, amen.